0: No doubt some of you may know that there is a Downton Abbey film in the theaters right now. Uh, From what I gather, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, from what I gather, the king and the queen are coming to visit Downton to spend the night as they're taking a tour through Yorkshire, which of course then sets all kinds of things in motion as far as the staff and everyone there is concerned. The uh, film, of course, is, is rooted in a very popular television series that had a great strong run, 2011 to 2016. It was something of a revised, modernized version of the old upstairs-downstairs classic from the 70s and then its remake uh, years, years later. Um, in case you don't know, what Downton Abbey is, is about, it's about uh, really a portrayal, a fictional portrayal, of the intricacies and mannerisms of the British class system. And one thing that's worth noting, uh, a praiseworthy thing uh, regarding the show, it's something that uh, sadly is, I think, is quite a bit overlooked, and that is the, the way the, the, the many of the characters are portrayed, not in all cases, but in most cases, that on the whole, when you look at the, the, the seasons of the, of the show, um, this point is being made, that inequality need not equal enmity. Inequality need not equal enmity. Just because you have a different position, a different role, a different status uh, does not then necessarily mean there can be no bonds between those differing persons, and it's quite striking upstairs, downstairs, which you you see even in the course of, of that show. That theme that, again, is often overlooked has deep biblical roots that you don't have to be the same. You don't have to have the same standing status and all these things, roles and place and all those, in order to have bonds, in order for there to be real fellowship and kinship one to another. That's deeply biblical, and it's a theme that we, as the modern church, dare not lose sight of. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians uh, this is the fourth in our series of four messages in this series on the spiritual gifts. We have looked at uh, what Peter had to say there in First Peter uh, chapter 4. Uh, we have looked at what Paul had to say in Ephesians 4. We have looked at what Paul had to say, this is last week now, in, in Romans 12. And now uh, this week we're looking here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's words there. If you're trying to find that, that's the New Testament. That's after the Gospels. It's after the book of Acts. And after Romans, then you have the two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is where we are this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And yes, we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to be just highlighting it, uh, big major sections of it in the course of of the message. But we do need to read the whole thing to have a, a real good sense as to where Paul is going with this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, hear now God's word. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us, even as we pause here to pray, to really acknowledge at this point that we need you as surely as Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit such that there was nothing more and nothing less than what you wanted to be recorded. That's exactly what we have. Uh, The miracle of inspiration. We're asking this morning that you would do yet another miracle and give our hard, stubborn hearts the ability to hear. Uh, That you would take and move within us and shape us and make us more and more like you. That you would help us um, to put ourselves there amidst the people there in Corinth hearing what they needed to hear, us now hearing what we need to hear and shaping us, molding us, forming us accordingly. You know us. You know us where we are trending in one direction or another, where we are putting too much emphasis over one, even one important vital thing at the expense of another. Uh, We ask that you would help us. We ask for your mercy. We thank you. Thank you for these few minutes that we have here at the start of the week to do this together. We pray in your name. Amen. This was, uh, I'm going to read you a quote. This was a, uh, something I came across some weeks ago when we were looking through 1 Peter. Uh, it's a quotation from Ed Clowney's commentary on 1 Peter. It's quite pertinent to what we have here in front of us this morning. It's an observation that he makes deep in the Luray Caverns of Virginia stands the console of a unique organ. Ages of seeping water have created thousands of stalactites icicles in stone hanging from the vaults of the caves. Each stalactite resonates when struck with a slightly different tone. The organ builder explored the cavern till he found the right stalactite for each note in the full range of an organ console. Some had to be tuned by chipping away a bit of their length. He then wired an array of motorized mallets so that each stalactite could be struck From the keyboard of the organ, visitors who have heard the music long remember the deep throbbing echoes of the singing rocks. If such melodic variety may be found in calcium deposits, what varied tones has God's Spirit given to the heirs of Christ's glory? Dang. I mean, he hits that one right over the fence. In his observation there, it's a great question, you know, if, if, if that, then how much so this. This is exactly what God has in mind for the church, with the only exception, the only qualification uh, that I would make on Ed Clowney's analogy there, that the difference being that certainly the Lord, and I know this is not Clowney's point, but I just want to say it, the Lord's intention is not for us to be hidden underground, but to do this out in the open air in front of everyone, that it would be a concert for the whole world to see and witness and partake of. Which brings us to Paul. Paul and this church in the city of Corinth. We know a lot about this church. We actually know more about the church in Corinth than any other church at that point in history because of the amount of correspondence that we have and the history as described in the book of Acts and such. This is a pastoral letter. It is written to a spiritually deeply, deeply spiritually troubled church. You could also call it an occasional letter, and by that, uh, what commentators mean is that it is situationally specific to the struggles that these individuals were uh, wrestling with at, at the time. That said, though it be occasional, though it be situationally specific to their deal at their time, it is intensely relevant for us today, First and Second Corinthians, by the way, um, just... Looking at the the, the themes that Paul is addressing, he's talking about, one, divisions in the church. That's certainly something he has to address quite forcefully there. He speaks of sexual sin. He speaks of the problems of marriage and divorce. He speaks to our struggles with idolatry, with questions regarding corporate worship. All those things are are covered in this one letter. And And then even more, even more, spiritual gifts... Spiritual gifts, what they are and how we're to understand those things. For instance, I assume you picked up on it. Verse 1, he couldn't be more plain as to his his intention for the next several paragraphs. Verse 1 of chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Well, hello. And then he goes on from there to make it very clear that the Lord in his grace has freed us from bondage. He is the one who enables us to confess Jesus as Lord. And that same God has also gifted His church. That same God has also gifted His church. The Lord has gifted His church. And so therein we must utilize those gifts in the right way. That just stands to reason, doesn't it? If the Lord Jesus, risen, resurrected, ascended, sitting at the right hand of the Father coming again, yet still in the meantime, has gifted his church, it is incumbent, it is imperative that we as his church, as his people, understand and utilize those gifts in the right way. Well, what would that mean, to do that in the right way? At least it means these three things, the three points in your outline. Seeing these gifts as being ultimately from one source as having ultimately one purpose and being all about one body. One source, one purpose, one body. Those three minimally are necessary if we are to be understanding and utilizing these gifts in, in the right way. So let's, let's take a look at this, uh, these three points in turn. Let's look at verses 4 through 6 where Paul makes it very clear. These ultimately are stemming from one source. Now, there are varieties of guests, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Well, obviously, Paul is acknowledging the diversities here. Three times he says, varieties, varieties, varieties. You can't. You really have to not be paying attention to pick up on the fact that he is acknowledging the, the varieties of the gifts, the gifts, things bestowed, given to us by God's grace, these, these gifts. He describes them also as service, emphasizing the, the purpose, the, the focus, the emphasis, what they're for, what they're really ultimately all about. He describes them also as activities, making clear when you dig down in there a little further how it is that these, these gifts, these Uh, Services that are also described as activities can bear any fruit whatsoever. It is only through the Lord Jesus Himself. Uh, Those three ways, important ways, to understand these gifts. So Paul, from the outset, is acknowledging these the diversity of the gifts, but with unity emphasized. He is acknowledging the diversity, but emphasizing the unity. Yes, he says diversity, that word, uh, three times, variety, 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 but he also counterbalances that by three times saying, but the same, but the same, but the same. And then you keep on reading through chapter 12, and it's quite clear that is meant to be the emphasis of our understanding uh, here. The, all that All the varieties are offset, out, are balanced, are tied to the Trinity. Every member of the, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit is mentioned here making it clear that ultimately, whatever the gifts may be, they all have their common origin in one source, the triune God, the triune God. However diverse these gifts may be, within the larger whole, there is yet one and only one source. Now, that's important to, to consider. We just take a step back and are open and honest with ourselves and just admit that for some of us, most if not all of us, some of the gifts are hard for us to acknowledge, understand, and appreciate. Just admit it. You don't get that person. You don't get their wiring. You don't understand how it is and why it is that they feel and act the way that they do. Especially even under the rubric of spiritual gifting, it, it uh, each. Very clear, each of these gifts is essential to the, to the function of the larger body, but that's not always so obvious, is it? And so it's essential at this point that we come to this and, and remind, are reminded and remind ourselves that all these gifts, whether we appreciate or understand them or not, originate with the same source, and that's the Lord. And that's the Lord. And may that therein enhance our understanding and appreciation of the various gifts. Because again, it is the Lord that has gifted his church in the way that he has. It is incumbent on us to utilize those gifts in the right way, and that begins with understanding this one source. But that then takes us to the second point. As a consequence of their having one source, they have one purpose, but one purpose. And we see that in verses 7 through 11. I'm just going to highlight some things uh, starting here at this point. Um, it's, it's a clear theme throughout 1 Corinthians 12 that the Lord um, gifts us individually and as a body as He sees fit. Not as we see fit, but as He sees fit. He does this as He sees It's a clear theme. Start with verse 11. I'm going to hit four places here in this chapter where it becomes very clear. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's verse 11. Verse 18, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and he goes on from there. So this is a... Trinitarian, apportioning, arranging, composing, and appointing. Very clear, very, very clear. It is The Lord gifts us as individuals and as a body as he sees fit, and this is applicable to all the gifts, to all the gifts, the ones that are still in existence today, the ones that have clearly ceased, and the ones that are, we're still debating. Now, just a quick point on the ones that we're still debating. Prophecy, tongues, how all that comes into play. Uh, I'd encourage you to read the PCA statement on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put that as a link on, the, on our Facebook page this afternoon. It's not that long. It's a great introduction to that topic. I do, we do not have the time to rabbit hole down that, that trail, trail, hole, whatever. Um, but I just want to say that if you want to go further with that. Please feel free. Now we can certainly talk about that at some point as well. The main point, and this is the main point, and this is where we oftentimes go awry here as we're reading through 1 Corinthians 12, because it's like these red flags go off, and we can't see the part, we can't see the whole because of the part, the parts, or the forest because of the trees. The main point being that the Lord gifts us as he sees fit for the good of the whole. This is getting us into that purpose. He gifts us as we see fit for the good of the whole. After all, what does Paul say in verse 7? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Do you hear the extraordinary nature of the promise being given there? To each is... Given the man, that means no exception, every follower of Jesus, every disciple of Christ, every single one, with no exception, has been blessed, has been gifted with a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, an appearing, a divulging, a showing. And that's one way Paul describes these gifts. It's an astounding. Astonishing promise and assurance that we have here that we ought 'er, never, never, ever, ever just say, well, of course, and just kind of move on. We ought to just gobsmack us. You know, benediction, let's go home. Well, no, we got the lunch. but um, (laughs) Just absolute extraordinary promise, but again for a singular purpose. The common good. The building up, the edification of the whole, the supply, the strength, the growth, the maturity of the larger body. That's what whatever your gifting is, that's what it is for. One source, one purpose. Now, this is something we've hit on every time, every one of these um, texts that we've looked at in these this series. This theme, it keeps coming up again and again and again. What is the purpose? ultimately, of these gifts. It is not ultimately about yours or my fulfillment. That is not in the text. It is about the common good, the upbuilding, the edification of the larger whole. We can never be coming at wrestling with these questions, with the first question on our mind, what's in it for me? Or if I may paraphrase President Kennedy, ask not what your church can do for you, ask what you can do for your church. There's no way around that. Now I realize that that's like I, I just said something that for many of us, self-included, feels like in this deep recesses of my heart like the the fingernails on the chalkboard because that's just not how we live it's not how we think it's not how we feel well then you have to ask yourself why what's wrong what's clearly there's something out of tune in me that i just don't want to go in the flow of what paul is saying here it's clearly what he's saying here. It's not just an individual stewarding of gifts. Paul is imploring his readers to recognize that we have to reckon with a corporate stewarding of the gifts because it's one source and one purpose. The Lord has gifted his church. Those gifts therein need to be utilized in the right way, and it begins with understanding the right purpose. Well, that then takes us to the body, the one body, one purpose, one One source, one purpose, one body. Uh, Verse 12, and that sets in motion so much else that Paul says here. I'm really only going to read verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then Paul goes on there to unpack this beautiful, amazing, astonishing word picture of the church, the local church, and us as part of it. And then the larger, holy Catholic church as being one body, the body of of Christ, a one single whole, many parts, and every one of them essential for the flourishing of any and all. It's quite a concept and something we've got to not just lay hold of but live out of. And it speaks against, I'll put it this way, two complexes. Two complexes that we can suffer from at any time, and it's, it's exactly what Paul's getting at here. One you could call the inferiority complex, and that's verses 14 through 20. I'm just going to summarize what he's saying. It's an absurd scenario where any part of the body, you, me, whoever it might be, says of themselves, you know, I don't much care for what I am. I don't much care for what I am. I want to be something else. Because I can't be something else, well, I'm just going to pull back. It's an Absolutely absurd scenario, that's what Paul is saying there. You see the insanity, right? We would say, well, obviously there's an eye can't do it, and an ear can't do it. Well, why would we? Well, that's his point. That's exactly his point. And the root cause, of course, in all of that is a dissatisfaction of the Lord's dealings with us and a distrust in his ways with us, and a failure to see the beauty and the diversity of what he has designed for us to be as as a body. And so we pull away. All right, so this body imagery speaks right into that, to the inferiority complex, but then it also speaks to the other extreme, and that is the superiority complex. You don't want to go there either. And that's verses 21 to 26. And again, he's putting before us another absurd scenario. It goes like this. Well, I don't much care for how God has made you. It's just flipped. And, um, you know, if you can't appreciate that, if you can't clue into that, and if you won't withdraw and pull away yourself, then I will. And again, of course, you'd think in terms of a body and a hand or a foot or whatever. It's absurd. It's crazy, right? It never happened. Why here? Why here? And and its roots, of course, its roots. Where are these roots? Right down in the ugly soil of pride in an overinflated view of ourselves and our importance and our significance. And again, the body imagery is the corrective to this, the vital, necessary corrective to this. You guys were so patient with me this past summer in all of my illustrations from the Apollo 11 program, and I'm now going to trespass on that patience. Um, so much was rightly written and said about that, and it was, this was something I came across some months ago, and I it's just I haven't been able to shake it. And it's how 400,000 people allowed three to do something significant. i read you this, this little excerpt from a description of a book that came out this past summer, Team Moon by uh, Catherine Thamesh, and she in that shares stories of the hidden heroes, spacesuit seamstresses, radio, telescope operators, parachute designers, and others who made it possible to get men to the moon, get them home, and let the rest of the world watch while it happened. At Kennedy Space Center, some 17,000 engineers, mechanics, soldiers, contractors, and other workers set up an the enormous missile for the launch, and there were the two Bobs. The guys in Houston monitoring just how little fuel was left in the lunar module during its descent to the surface. Team Moon also included a 24-year-old 24, 24 computer whiz kid, Jack Garman, who helped work through worrisome computer glitches during the Eagle's landing. The computer code that ran all the systems was developed by a team of software engineers at MIT led by Margaret Hamilton. Roughly 500 people worked on the space suit, including one seamstress who commented, quote, we didn't worry too much until the guys on the moon started jumping up and down. And that gave us a little bit of an eyebrow twitch. And so it's a little wonder that Neil Armstrong would later say that when he took his first steps on the moon, his immediate thought was how it took 400,000 people back on earth for that to happen. One source, one purpose, one body. Each is gifted, none has all the gifts, and every one of us needs the gifts of one another. Why? Because as a follower of Jesus, we are one with Jesus and one with each other, which is why Paul says what he does In verse 26, that is not just the stuff of beautiful greeting cards. It's a mark of a healthy church. If this be true, you're living out the unity that he means, the body life that is intended. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's what it means for the Lord to have gifted his church. We need to understand that and live that out as A body, one last Apollo 11 thing, Sotheby's auction. Did you hear about that this past summer? uh, This past July, when the uh, original video recordings that that were much crisper, much better resolution than anything anybody saw on TV that evening when Neil Armstrong was coming down the ladder, the original video recordings, the three of them, were auctioned at a price of $1.82 million dollars. This is the original recordings of the the EVA for Armstrong as he's coming down that that ladder. Extraordinary, you know, that that they existed, that they were found, that they were auctioned. You know where they were? You know where they were the last 43 years before that? They were in Gary George's personal collection. Well, who's Gary George? Gary George was an intern at NASA in 1973 and bought them. You know for how much? $217. $217. I'd say he made a profit. <laughs> I'd say that was a good deal. And you know you'd also have to say? That sometimes the most extraordinary treasure is right under your nose, and you have no idea. That's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians 12. And speaking of the giftedness of the church. The value of these gifts, individually and corporately, should never be left undiscovered, untapped, and unharnessed. That would be a crime. That would be a tragedy. May it not be so here. You've heard me speak, I'm going to say it one more time, regarding these spiritual gift inventories. I cannot encourage you enough to take the time and do that. Some of you I know already are and you're taking your time with it. That's awesome. That's great. Others of you are you're taking your time and taking your time. I would encourage you to set a goal, a completion goal as to when you're going to do it and send it in. It's a good practical means whereby we can lay hold of these huge concepts that we've been looking at these last few weeks. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would please make us into a church that acknowledges these things, is discovering these things, and is utilizing these things, these gifts, these activities, these services in the way that you would require, in the way that you would call us to, in a way that is informed by there being one purpose, one source, one body. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me ask our